Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. Good morning, church. So good to see all of you this morning. I got to tell you, I was kind of thinking about keeping going on that in songs for a minute there. That was, uh, although I'm sweating a lot already, so y'all don't want me sweating too bad up here. It's going to get weird. But uh, we're continuing our series this morning. We just started uh, a new series last week called Four Priorities for Gospel Saturation. We have a mission as a people of God that sometimes... Uh, we, we confuse or, or we set our priorities in a different way. Uh, but when it comes to the mission of God, which is go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, the most important commission we have been given, the great one, that is, that we've all received, not just me as a pastor or you as whatever role we all have. In, in Christ, we've been given it. And there's some things we have to transition as believers for certain, but also as a church, there's some ways of thinking that we have held to, uh, whether we knew them or not, uh, that we need to consider and move on from. Last week we talked about this idea of moving from uh, collection to mobilization. This idea of, alright, we need to collect, collect, and make sure the church has enough people in it. Moving from that mindset to, what would it look like to be the kind of church that sends people out? That... Yeah, they come in, but we they come they they come in order to be sent. Uh, that we are a church interested in mobilizing and sending others. This morning, we're going to talk about the idea of transformation over attendance. Transformation over attendance. We make a lot of different jokes about this, at least in in our staff and in like church culture, where we say, you know, there's these people that exist, and we call them creasters. You ever heard this term? These people that exist that come to church on Christmas and Easter, Christers. We sometimes forget Mother's Day. People show up for that one. You better, you better not offend mama or grandmama, but not so much Father's Day. Well, oh well. These, it's like a box that we check off, and, and perhaps that's you this morning. Maybe someone drug you in the building. I don't know what brought you in the place, or maybe just in your mind you're thinking, every once in a while I better check in and, and make sure that I'm attending because that's important to God. And it would be important to God if it has meaning, if you're not simply here to check a box, if coming here has more to it, then yes, God is interested in your attendance. But that's that's just a very, very small piece. Having uh, access to you is a very small piece. Transformation is a much larger term. You know, this is the interesting part of the Great Commission that we often think about, and that is He never told us to go and tell everybody about Christ and, and to make converts. It's not the word He used there. He used the word disciples. That means transformation. That means life change. That means we stick around. If we're the one that gets the opportunity uh, to, to begin a walk with Christ with someone, that means that's a starting point. And we have a long journey ahead together. That, that's why a lot of times uh, I used to do campus ministry when I was in college and mission trips. And I'm often concerned about that because I want to know that there's somebody else following up. Because we're called to make disciples. I want to know, can we keep the dialogue going beyond the point of saying yes to Christ? We are meant for gospel saturation. Now here's the term we're going to be using for the next few weeks. And honestly, for, for, for a while as a church, an idea that we're working towards. And that is being the kind of church that owns the lostness of an identified people in a defined place, ensuring that every man, woman, and child has repeated opportunities to see, hear, and respond to the good news of Jesus. Where we live, learn, work, and play. Now, that's a big definition, but there's a couple of things in there to consider. What would it look like for me to be a part of a church where we, we're doing things constantly to show Jesus to every man, woman, and child? And for me personally, what does it look like? Well, I know what I'm already doing. I'm living somewhere. I'm working somewhere. I'm playing places and I'm learning somewhere. 
This is naturally what we do as human beings. What people are you interacting with already? Gospel saturation says, all right, I'm going to own that and I'm going to do what the Lord calls me to in that place. This is the call of the gospel. In fact, the other great commission, uh, Matthew 28 is the one we often go to. Jesus also says in Mark 16, go into all the world and proclaim the gospel to the whole creation. This is the great command, the great commission. So how are we doing at accomplishing this? Well, we talked last week about how it looks a little grim, about how Even though America as a whole has grown, the church has been in great decline for several decades now. And we could go through stats to see that. We're not going to do that again this week. Go back and look at that from last week. But here's some things to consider. Uh, we, We did a survey earlier in the year. Some of you were here for that back in January. We surveyed you to kind of see where where you were at. Because what we've been hearing uh, from generally from... uh, like Barna and these other studies, is that 85% of people uh, in the church say that the Great Commission is very important. That's actually the way you answered it as well. When we did the survey, 85% of you said the Great Commission is very important to you and that it applied to you. That's actually good news. That was good news to me. I'm like, well, I don't know what to do about that other 15%. I'm hoping those were guests that day because I feel like we talk about this a lot. And I try to emphasize it every time. There are no like super Christians. There's just Christians that God has called. We're in this boat together and we all have received the the Holy Spirit and the Great Commission together. So you got that part. Very few though said that they had talked to a single person about the gospel of Jesus in that past year. And when asked how happy you were about gospel sharing or what we're calling now gospel saturation, most of you on a scale of one to 10 said five or less. Now, I don't, we didn't do any of that to belittle you or to discourage you. Rather, it was meant for us to see, okay, what are we doing? Where are we at as a church? And how can we encourage one another to, to good works, as, as, the, as Paul wrote in, in, in his epistles? He said, how can we spur each other on for the gospel of Christ? What, what may be a challenge to you is when you think about this notion of gospel saturation, you think that I've got to do something like way outside of my norm. And for some of you, actually, that will be true. Because I have a feeling that there's a handful of you in the room that the Lord has called to something some time ago and you've said no. And to you, my friend, it's time to put the S on the table. I don't know what else to tell you. And you, and you may be feeling like, wow, I feel like the Lord doesn't speak to me like He used to. I, I feel like I can't see God move. Well, when you've got a series of no's on the table, it's hard for Him to speak until you finally say, okay, fine. <laughs> I hear you, God, and I'll go where you send me. Here I am, Lord, as Isaiah said. Here I am, send me. That's a few of you in the room. But there's a, there's a greater number, perhaps, of you that just need to consider this smaller detail, and that is, what would it look like to share this with people where I live, work, learn, and play? I'm already in these places. What would it look like to just shift just a little bit to where I am a herald, a messenger of the gospel? What, what needs to change? Maybe it's pretty small. Maybe it just takes a mindset shift. Maybe it just takes tomorrow morning when you wake up and you're dreading work. Some of you are. Some of you are excited to go to work. That's awesome. I think you're probably in the right field. (laughs) If you're dreading it, well, either the Lord's got you in the right spot or you're not there yet. You need to find it. But where you are currently, what would it look like tomorrow morning when you step your feet out of bed to say, okay, Lord, you know what I'm facing today. You know what my workload is. You also know who I'm going to have correspondence with today. Show me. Just open up doors. I don't know. I've, maybe some of you, I've been here a decade. I, I've known these people a long time and there's never been opportunities. Lord, either I'm missing them, I can't see them, or they're not open. Would you open doors? It, maybe it just starts with a prayer shift. I'm pretty, pretty certain it starts with a prayer shift. That for, for most of us, we're not beginning in prayer if we're thinking about gospel saturation. For the church, it's especially true. If we have any intention of reaching our community, it's going to start with a praying church. No doubt. Here's what we know from churches across America. People who attend regularly, they often say they don't know how to hear from God for themselves through Bible reading and prayer. They don't know how to share their grace story, and they don't really know what it means to be a disciple or make a disciple. 
That takes transformation, friends. We don't get there by doing and working. We get there by yielding. That's where we're going to be today. I want to pop up an image. Uh, I showed it last week, but it was so tiny that it just wasn't worth our time. So let's see if this week is a little better. This is where we've been. Whether We didn't intend to do this, but we kind of were falling under this operation, this kind of system of being a church growth model. And there was really many great effects of that. But over time, it's creating some of this stuff in our church. And we want to, we want to move on from that. We don't want to be the kind of church that collects, that's interested in competition, uh, competing with other churches. Uh, I mentioned last week, I, I would prefer for you to be the kind of people who say, you know what, Jesus is great. There is no better way. There is no better Savior. He is it. That Boast about that. As Paul said, I boast in nothing but Christ crucified. So I'm less interested in you boasting about our church. Boast in Jesus. If you have the luxury of bringing Him in, the, in this place, I will do my best to share the Word of God. But let's. what would it look like to be a kind of Christian culture in Rocky Mount that links arms with other believers and takes the, takes the city for Jesus? That's what I want to be a part of. I pray you do too. Show the next image. This is what we're hoping to accomplish. This is where we're going to be over the next several weeks. We've already dealt with mobilizing. We're dealing now with this idea of transformation, which is the idea of uh, building disciples, if you were. We're releasing assets. What? There's not a lot of churches that are, are, are interested in, okay, how can we give more and, and send more? Like, the, the, most of us want that, but we don't know how to get there, and, and we're, we're, we're all concerned about whether or not we're going to have enough at the end of the day. Like, is our oil going to be the oil that runs out? And it seems to me, at least when I read my Bible, that the ones who are really, really cautious and holding back are the ones who, in fact, do run out of oil. And the ones who just say, all right, fine. Take my fishes and loaves. This was supposed to be my lunch today, Jesus, but you go right ahead. And somehow he feeds an entire like 10,000 people. Okay. God can do that. So let's be open-handed. And then last, can we collaborate with others? So here's where we're going to dig in today. And in this work by Christ together, it says that transformation occurs when God's people are captivated by the gospel, empowered by His indwelling Spirit, and compelled by love to live holy lives. I love how they put that. That's, in fact, kind of where we're going to lean in today. These three sort of ideas of captivation, the Spirit of God, and a love that compels us. Uh, Neil, Neil McLehan, who's a, a missiologist, he says, whatever the king touches, the king changes. This means that transformation occurs when we get in community with the Holy God. That it occurs when we spend time with the Savior. I'm wondering, how has your life been transformed? Is it something that you go, well, it happened then. I wonder, is it happening now? This is continuous. It's if you think in math, it's like a ray. There was a dot, a point of salvation, but then there's a line with an arrow and it continues until the Lord comes again. I'm not even sure that in heaven there's not a continuation of God's teaching us and our learning. I'm not sure that at the point of death or at the point of Christ's return that suddenly uh, we are not learning from Him anymore. I feel like eternity is going to be more and more of Him pouring out His grace and mercy for us, for us to understand. And so transformation. Are you becoming more like Jesus in your character, in your behavior? Are you being changed? You know, I'm convinced this is what's actually underneath what's wrong with the American church, is that its members don't look any different than the world, that they don't behave any different than the world. And who would want to do all of this? Let's just be logical for a second. Why are you here on a Sunday morning? You could be sleeping. You could, if, and if Monday through Friday we just live and act and have no joy and no peace like the rest of the world, what are we doing in here? Unless Jesus is changing us and we're beginning to transform and look different. That's the greatest gospel evidence is life change. Are you being transformed? We're going to be in the book of Romans today. Those of you who know your Bibles well know there's only a handful of places I could have gone to find the word transform. 
There's only two, in fact, in the New Testament, Romans and 1 Corinthians, and uh, the one in Corinthians we're going to use a little bit today, but we're going to spend time in Romans chapter 12, verses uh, 1 through 13. And I want to read this for you. This is Paul's letter to the Romans. Here he's appealing to believers, to the church at Rome, and therefore to us. He's appealing to us that we could fully know that the Lord might fully transform our lives. It can, be, it, can, it can be done in Christ Jesus. And there are marks. That's really what he's doing here, is giving marks of a transformed life. So as we dig in, I hope you will see those. Let's start together at verse 1. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now there's a stunner. But to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. So having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, to the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, and the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Now listen to this last part where he unloads a bunch of command type verbs. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints. And seek to show hospitality. God bless the reading of His Word. Amen? Amen. You want to know what a transformed life looks like? It looks like this. This These are the marks. And in Christ Jesus... These can be the marks of our life. Here's the first I see as we dig into verses 1 and 2. Total surrender to Christ. Total surrender. Now, when we speak of these things as marks, I don't intend them to be steps. This isn't like a process that builds on itself. I'm convinced, church, that we're constantly in the work of surrender. (laughs) That over time, and, and perhaps with age, perhaps with maturity, we surrender more to Christ. That there are some things right now that I I still struggle to really fully give over to Him. Even though I've seen His goodness and I've seen His work in the past, I still struggle with what, I don't know, my comforts or whatever it is that I think I need to survive rather than to hand them over and say, you know what? It doesn't matter that much what people think of me. I'm scared sometimes. I'll admit this as, as, a, as a pastor, as a preacher who gets up, I'm, I'm, I'm scared that people uh, w- would leave. <laughs> I'm less scared of that all the time. I used to be really frightened of that when we were at the school. And there were times, church, where some of you might have been there and like 11 people would be sitting out here. I think our lowest Sunday was like 10 adults and we had 20 children. It's kind of ridiculous. All of the people brought their children, but... I'm preaching to 10 people. In those days, I was like, okay, I know what the Word of God says. And if I really, really bear down on it, will they run? And to to have this sense of, okay, eventually, I've just got to surrender that. I've just got to give the Word of God as He intends it and trust that the Holy Spirit will move in your hearts as He should be moving in mine. That's just one of many areas that I feel like over time I have to surrender more and more. So it's a process. Transformation is about God doing something in me and me cooperating with it. It's not about 
what more I can do by my strength. No, it's a cooperation with the Holy Spirit. And that's why in verses 1 and 2, that's why he phrases it this way. Paul says, I appeal to you therefore. Now, in order to really understand the therefore, you have to go back a little bit. you got to go back to chapter 11. And I'll just give you one phrase from 11 that really, really is stunning. In fact, he says... Uh, in chapter 11, he says, Oh, if you could understand, this is like verse 28, as regards the gospel, you're, you're enemies, but as regards election, you're beloved for the sake, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. And in verse 33 of chapter 11, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom of the knowledge of God. Like it's Paul is just like, if you could just get this, the gospel is too good. It's too good to be true. And it is true. And you've been given it freely. And so he says in verse 1 of Romans 12, I appeal to you then. If you, if you see that, if you believe that, be transformed. Brothers and sisters, be transformed by the mercies of God. That is the sacrifice of Christ. If you understand that, then as he continues in verse 1, he says, be a living sacrifice. Why? Because it's your spiritual worship. Now that's an interesting phrase. It's a, it's a good translation there. Some of you have different Bibles perhaps this morning. Some say different things there. The word literally spiritual worship is logikin latreia. And latreia is, is one of the forms of worship, but logikin sounds like logic, right? You hear that easily. That's the idea that the most sensible reaction, the logical conclusion, the the response of your mind should be, if God is that good to me, He can have me. That's what Paul's saying. The most reasonable response to the gospel is, here I am then, God. You can have me and all of me. Here I am, send me. Does that make sense to you? If God Himself died for you to take on a burden you could not pay, if that's true, then... All you can give is, is, is not enough, but that's all you can give, so give it all. That's, that's what Paul is saying by the mercies of Christ. Present your bodies, therefore, as a living sacrifice. That means this, this life, this body you've been given, it's all yours. I will go where you sin. I will do as you please. I will not be conformed to this world. Rather, I will be transformed I'm transformed because I know something is true that the world doesn't see. And it is changing my mind. It is renewing my strength. It is renewing the way I think. And it makes me, instead of looking inward and, and telling myself a, a lot of things that may not be true, instead I look vertical and I say, okay, God, who am I in Christ Jesus? It's renewing and transforming my mind. The transformed life is marked Instead, by self-denial and total commitment to follow Jesus. That's the interesting thing about Christianity. Something that somewhat separates it from many other faiths or even uh, mindsets, worldviews that people have. Jesus writes in Luke 9, a fa a famously, he, he says to His disciples, If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow Me. The idea of the Christian walk is to consider where Christ is leading and follow. That the whole idea, this whole, this whole concept of gospel saturation that has some of you terrified. There's a few of you in the room right now, maybe a great many of you in the room that are like, I've never really talked to anybody about what I believe. I'm scared I'll mess it up. I'm scared I'll have the wrong words to say. And that mindset comes from this state of, I've got to do it myself. Dear friend, start in prayer. Say, Lord, I don't, I have all these concerns. Air them out with the Savior and say, but God, I believe. I believe what you said is true. And so would you show me not only where to go, but, but how to do it. Give me the words to say. I don't know if y'all think that, that somehow like missionaries become ultimate missionaries on the airplane. Like somehow evangelism dust is sprinkled upon them as they get on planes. It's not true. If you can't do it here, you can't do it there. It only gets harder when you can't speak the language. So nothing magical happens. The only thing that's different in those who are called is they say yes, and they are prayerful, and they say, okay, God, I'll do it. And then God shows up. And we lack that sometimes simply because we're not yielding. We don't, we don't believe He can do it in us, and He can. He can. 
Paul describes this in a way that would blow most of you up, blows me up. Paul says in Galatians 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. The life I now live, I live by faith. His whole goal here in this phrase, transform mind, is that we would be formed into Christ Jesus, that we would look more like Him every day. This word transformed is a funny word. It's actually metamorpho. <laughs> you probably, that word sounds familiar, metamorphosis. I skipped right by this image earlier. Um, post, pop that up, Brandon. I don't know if the people saw it, but this, this is really the idea of this word. When you think of metamorphosis, probably like me, you think of caterpillars, right? That's not the prettiest thing. Does anybody, do y'all like caterpillars? Like, oh, those are so pretty. I really like caterpillars. No, but most of us like butterflies. We, we think they're pretty cool. Like, I like a butterfly. My cat hates them. I found a lot of dogs don't like them too much. But I, I like them. This is the idea of metamorphosis, that what we were, we are not anymore. We are becoming something that God has created and, and, and designed for us that we couldn't see for ourselves until we began to follow Christ Jesus. Paul writes to the Galatians again in chapter 4, My dear children, for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Until Christ is formed in you. William Booth, you may not be familiar with that name, he's the founder of the Salvation Army. Now I've got to admit the Salvation Army has become some things maybe that it wasn't originally intended to be. I think they do still in some places host church-like services, but most of the time you don't know the Salvation Army for that. You know them as the jingle jangle guys at like Christmas and whatever. But William Booth founded it with a different idea in mind. And when interviewed about this, with, with some hesitation and tears coming to, her, to his eyes, here's what he said. He said, I'll tell you the secret. God has had all there was of me. <laughs> this is a funny thing to say. God has had all there was of me. There have been men with greater brains than I have. Men with greater opportunities. But from the day that I got the poor of London on my heart and caught a vision of what Jesus could do with them, I made up my mind that God should have all of William Booth. To which Dr. Chapman remarked, I learned from William Booth that the greatness of a man's power is the measure of his surrender. I can't really think of a truer statement than that. That what actually makes me great? What makes you great? Christ in you. Christ in you. The hope of glory. That's what makes you great. And the more you surrender to that, the more the greatness and glory of Christ shines through your life. What a statement. Have you surrendered control of your life to Christ? A phrase that wrecked me some years ago when I came across it the first time is this idea, uh, some old pastor said this, I'm sure many have said it since, and that is that Christ is either Lord of all or He's not Lord at all. And I'm still wrestling with that because I know in my life there are areas that I need surrender. And I'm sure that's true in you. The transformed life is a process, but say yes. Be conformed to the image of Christ. Here's the second. And this one's somewhat unpopular in our current society, and that is the idea of true identity found in Christ. Surrender would certainly not be popular, right? We, we, I, I wouldn't say that what I'm about to deliver to you is the most culturally popular message you've ever heard, okay? Surrender. Oh, well, I don't really want to do that. But in Christ Jesus, I see that that's how He reveals glory in me. And then true identity, I don't find it in myself. I don't even find it in others. I find it in Christ Jesus. And this is where he begins in verse 3. He says, think. This word think, regard, the, the word literally means to understand. Uh, Barnhouse, comment, a commentator in the book of Romans, he says, the word has a shade of meaning that was used in the ancient world to describe a man who was in his right mind. So the right way to think about me is to not think a whole lot about me. That's just wow. 
You would think that wouldn't be so mind-exploding, but if you tell this to some people in your life, they're going to go, wait a minute, that's literally all I do is think a whole lot about me and about what I'm wrestling with. And, and we've shaped our whole world around how we personally interact with it rather than what God has created and how He intends it. And so identity has become this odd thing to discuss. And yet Paul says, a man in his right mind has sober judgment. That is to have a sound mind. And he thinks about his faith in measure. The word here, this, this phrase might sound strange, but when you unpack it, it's, he means that we've been given faith according to, to God's grace and not our own. This word measure is the word metron, where we get the word metric. It's a standard of measuring. He's saying a faith that the body of Christian belief that saves this gospel is our truest measure. So it's great what he's saying. He's saying, on one hand, don't think so highly of yourself. But on the other hand, and that might make you feel, well, okay, well, I'm, I'm a turd, like, okay. And that might make you feel real low. Like the more, in fact, the more I think about me, the more I start to go, you know, I'm a real mess. I don't like everything I see. When I look in the mirror, when I think about what I've done, there's guilt and shame there. And I'm disturbed by some of the ways I think sometimes. I'm like, that's not right. But that's not even what Paul's saying either. He's, he's saying, okay, certainly don't be prideful and arrogant and think so highly of yourself. But then at the same time, the way you measure yourself is not the way you look in the mirror. You're measured by the grace, by the faith that God has given. That's your measurement. And to that measurement... I'm loved. To that measurement, Christ died for me. My friends, when you're measured to that, you can't take pride in it. You shouldn't be arrogant in it, but you should have some high self-esteem. Not, not in of yourself, but in of a great God who loves you. I'm thankful for that measure. I'm thankful that I can look at that. And so what he's really saying here is that we don't think more of ourselves, but instead we we think very highly of what God has done. As one writer says, the gospel prevents us uh, from thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. For we are sinners, saved entirely by another's kindness. And the gospel also prevents us from thinking more lowly than we ought. For we are saved sinners. <laughs> we are loved and we are valued in the gaze of the only one whose opinion ultimately matters. That here's that at the end of the day, the one, the judge, the one this all really matters to, he loves me and he saved me. That's incredible, incredible news. That means my identity is not based in what I see or even what others say, but what in Christ has done. That's huge. Is that huge to you today, church? I pray it is. I pray it impacts you. Even if you've been a believer long, a long time, you should not tire of that good news. He says then in verses 4 through 8, he describes what it looks like to be in the body of Christ. That means who we are in Jesus is corporate. <laughs> that means this whole idea of being solo Christian, solo Christianity, it's just unbiblical. So if you're feeling that, know this, it's probably not of Christ. In fact, there's another passage I can go to that says, do not forsake the assembling of yourselves as some are in the habit of doing. There's a, there's a great many that over the years have said, you know what, I just don't want to be in that place, that house of, uh, uh, that den of vipers, you know, that, that house of hypocrites, which the church has come to be known to many, like it's full of, and, and when I hear people say that, I say, I don't know why you're surprised by that. Of course it's a house of hypocrites. We're messed up people, and so are you. So like, why is that shocking? We're, we're in different parts of a life of transformation. Some of us are a lot farther along. I'm thankful that probably there's a handful of you in the room that are in very, very front stages of transformation. And you're going to go out of this place sometimes and make a mess. Not, maybe not intentional, but you're going to make a little mess. Oh my goodness, I can't believe they go to Eastgate Church. Well, I'm thankful for you, friend. Come just as you are and be forever changed by the love of Jesus. You walked in the door, just like me, a big, big time mess. But we're going to walk out different. I'm thankful for that. And I'm thankful for the idea that what it really means to be a Christian community is that we're one body, many members. 
that we have a lot of different giftings. That's all true. I don't even think that's the main point of what, what Paul's talking about here, though. He's trying to help us remember that we are measured this way in Christ, and who we actually are is who we are as a body of believers. And that together we are stronger. That as one we are united as one body, and that we can accomplish much as a people. And then he goes through these lists. I'm not going to spend a great time on this, but the word gifts here is the word charisma. You might be familiar with that word, charisma. It's the idea, though, of charis, which is grace. That is an unmerited, a gift given, a spiritual endowment. Teaching, exhorting, leading, acts of mercy. If you've surrendered your life to Christ, friend, you're a new creation. You have a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul writes, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to Himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making His appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. You have a new identity, my friends, and you have a mission. Now, I don't know what you've been told, but I can say this with confidence. I don't know if someone told you you're not smart, you're not beautiful, you're not this, you're not that, you won't accomplish much, or, you, or you've been misdirected and told a great deal of lies of things you are and you are not. In Christ Jesus, you're a new creation. The old has passed away. I don't know what you brought into the building, I don't know what you brought into this Christian walk, but you are changed. And it's time to start owning the transformation and saying, you know what, I yield my life to Jesus. And that the longer I walk with Him, the more I look different. The Greek philosopher Socrates was known to have quoted, and you've heard this before, know thyself. One of his famous quotes, know thyself. And it sounds really basic, but if you think about it, that's pretty deep. Because a lot of us don't know ourselves very well. In fact, there's a lot of times we do things and we're like, what, what did I do that for? What was I thinking when I did that? In fact, in, in hindsight, oftentimes we'll look back and go, I don't have a clue what I was thinking when I did that. Why did I date him? Oh my goodness. You go back and look at pictures and go, Hugh! I don't know what's wrong with me then. Just couldn't see straight. Something's up. Know thyself. What, what's going through your mind? Now, the interesting thing about that is you look in the mirror to know the answer to that question. From a human perspective, that makes a whole lot of sense. But let me offer you something, a way of thinking. Tim Keller, when writing about this particular subject, he says there's really three ways to know your identity. And humans are naturally bent to two of them. You either know it outwardly, inwardly, or upwardly. Now, the traditional approach has been this. The approach that a lot of us experienced, and that is the outward approach. That is that we get our identity by conforming to who our community tells us we are. Okay? That's a lot of people. That my parents told me who I am. That my friends growing up told me who I am. That perhaps teachers told me who I am. Oh, you're smart. Oh, you're not so smart. Oh, you're gifted. Uh, I don't know what you're going to accomplish in life. Like, there's those, some of those kids get most likely to succeed... I hope your school didn't do like least likely to succeed. Like what a, what a setup. Least likely to succeed. Like I, I almost wonder if I'd have gotten that reward in high school. Like I clowned around a lot. I, I love making people laugh to this very day. So high school was an opportunity to test my material out. Can I make teachers laugh? Sometimes. Sometimes though it didn't work so good. Outwardly, what have people been telling me I am? Am I actually that? Now, a more popular, a more modern approach is that we tell ourselves, we decide based on our own sense of self. I'll admit this to you. I think both of these approaches are dangerous. Some might argue the second approach is more dangerous, that telling yourself who you are, that looking in the mirror and saying, well, this is who I say I am, 
is more dangerous, but I think they have equal amount of headache. Whereas in Christ Jesus, what Paul is instructing here is we're being transformed how? We're thinking of ourselves how? We're thinking of ourselves according to the measure of faith that God has given. So my identity is where? Okay, God, then, then who am I? If I didn't do this piece, I can tell you right now, I wouldn't be standing here. Because unlike maybe some of you in the way you feel, I, I can be very, I, at one point in my life, I was very arrogant and very prideful, thought very highly of what I could accomplish. When I would read, I can accomplish all things through Christ who strengthens me, I, I wanted to believe it in the way it was written, but really I just thought I could accomplish all things. I didn't need the second half. That's where I was in life. Maybe you were there. Some of you might have been there. I just thought, I can do anything. And I definitely don't want to be a pastor. Because I saw that growing up. And it looked like a mess. And it is a mess. It's a sweet kind of mess. But it's a mess. All right. And yet, when I say, okay, God, who am I? I'm a communicator. Okay, well, what will I do with that? I'm pretty good on my feet. I seem to like... I have these, these, this particular, as, as Taken in the movie Taken, he said, I got a particular set of skills, you know. Mine aren't like his, but as I dove into that, okay, God, well, okay, fine. Who am I then? Well, here I am, church. You're a called man, and you can try to run from it. You're a called woman. You're a called man. You're a brother and sister in, in the faith. And, and what that looks like is this, that what really matters is not what I think of myself and not what society thinks of me. It's what God says who, and what He says I am. And if that's true, it's far better news because no matter how, how fluffy and how wonderful that people say, oh, you're going to accomplish much, you're going to do so much. In my heart, I'm like, but yeah, but there's some funky things going on in here. There's, I'm thinking some strange. But in Christ Jesus, I go, okay, I am a sinner, but I know that I'm saved by grace. And that measurement makes sense. And God says I'm a part of His kingdom that He's got a purpose for me. And He says that for every single one of us. And the Great Commission goes out for every person that we get to be a part of gospel saturation. So what's our mirror? Our mirror is not what we thought. It's this. That means this is my new mirror. Okay, God, who am I? What do you want me to be? I'm going to be the greatest of that. I'm going to give my life towards that. Whatever mission you desire, my true identity is in Christ Jesus. You feel in that, church? Here's the last, and if I haven't disturbed you yet, I will. Because Paul, what he's written, is explosive. This last piece, 9 through 13, there are, are 13, I believe, active verbs here. And it's all underneath the idea of love. To that I say, be compelled by the love of Christ. What does it look like to be marked? To be a transformed, a a transformed life in Jesus Christ. It's to be compelled by His love. This is a very interesting phrase because He comes out the gate by saying, let love be genuine, and then immediately He says the word hate. That makes that should kind of boggle you right off the bat. You, you went straight out of the gate with some hard, you went hard in the paint right here. Love be genuine and abhor. That's a word I don't even really use much because it sounds bad. Hate is that loathe. Loathe entirely. Abhor what is evil. That genuine love, he says, sincere. This word genuine is the idea of without hypocrisy. It's literally anhupokritas, which is where we get the word hypocrite. It is verbatim here in the text in the Greek. It means without hypocrisy. That means in order for me to not be a hypocrite, I should love what is good and cling to what is good and hate what is evil. I cannot possibly say my love is sincere and genuine and also say that this stuff that God hates is good. Amen. God hates sin. God hates evil. He loves us, but He despises those things. And so if I'm to be sincere, I hate what God hates. Now, it's not super popular. I understand that. But it doesn't make it any less true. One writer says it may seem strange to tell someone to love and to hate in the same sentence. But that is exactly what Paul has done. We cannot love rightly without hating rightly. <laughs> what? This is closely linked to being sincere. That is that real love 
loves the beloved enough to be tough. Any love that is afraid to confront the beloved is not really love. You know who your closest friends are, don't you? They're the ones that will come up to you and say, you got a booger in your nose. That's a real friend. A real friend walks up to you and says, what you just said to him wasn't right. What you just did, you know that wasn't the Spirit of God. You were not leading and following Him. You need people like that in your life. Because most people in your life are sugary, fluffy, and they will tell you what you want to hear, and it's a lie. It's not true. And then you'll walk a course you should never have walked. A true friend is like Jesus. He loves, his love is sincere, it is active, and you see it bore out on the cross, but at the same time, he doesn't lie to you and tell you you're good and you're okay. He says, no, this price has been paid on your behalf and you needed it. I pray we can be that kind of church that can show love and still cling to what is good and that God would still allow us to grow, that He would still bring people to salvation in spite of the fact that what we really should be teaching and following and holding fast to makes us stand out and makes us seem hard and tough. And yet that seems to be the implication here to hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. And then he goes on to give several things in the list that we would love each other with brotherly affection. That the one thing that would really endanger the church is for people to get wind that we don't even like each other. Boy, that would be sad. He says love one another. He's talking to believers with brotherly, the word here is Philadelphia, brotherly affection. That's what the city means. Love each other like that. That that should be evident. That people should look in and go, you know what, those, those, those East Gators, they like one another. Well, I hope that's true. I hope that people, that you people aren't sitting over here because you know they sit over there. Like, I'm really hopeful that's not the case. Like, let's get as far away from them and God, please don't let us eat lunch at the same time. Like, I hope that's not happening. That genuine love should be on display and that we should be outdoing one another. That means leading the way, first to honor. My main goal is to respect and give you credit and hold you precious and honor you above all things. What an amazing church that would be to be a part of. That we, we outdo each other in, in, in zeal rather than laziness. We're fervent in spirit. We're patient with each other in tribulation. We're constant in prayer. We're hospitable. That's the idea of having a love for strangers. That when people walk in the door, we treat them like that too. We don't know strangers at this church. That would be awesome. So I've never met you before, but man, glad you're here. Come be a part of this crazy thing we're doing. We love each other with genuine love in Christ Jesus. Agape, an unconditional, motivating kind of love. This is what Paul writes in another place. He says in 2 Corinthians, For Christ's love compels us. Because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. We look at them by Christ's love. Love is, loving one another is evidence, in fact, of being Christ's disciple. If you don't have a life of love, you're not showing one maybe the greatest mark of a transformed life. And John, it says, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, some unusual things have been going on in our world, especially in our society. Paul writes, true love hates evil and clings to goodness. There was this monumental event this past week. Most of you probably heard about it. The end of this this thing called Roe v. Wade. I dug in some more this week as I considered that and thinking about what are the implications of that. What does that actually mean? And there's, there's a lot still left out there that is so uncertain about all this. One thing I do know as I, as I as dug in, there's this, 
There's a committee that I was familiar with called the National Right to Life Committee. It's the nation's oldest pro-life organization. And it estimates this, that there were somewhere around 63 million plus abortions that have taken place since 1973. Over 63 million. That's a baffling number. That's more deaths than all the deaths in the nations of World War II. All of them combined. The whole world war didn't even count for that. It's ten times that of the Holocaust. I don't know what that does to you, but it breaks my heart. Now here's what it means though. Is how the implications is now, now simply abortion law will now be handled state by state. And we don't know what that will mean for our state. One thing I, I have been studying is Colorado, for instance, is one of seven states without any term restrictions. As to when a pregnancy can be terminated, it's legal at all stages of pregnancy. Now, I'd love to hear some good arguments for that from a Christian perspective, but to me that sounds awful. A nine-month-old? A nine-month in the womb? That's a stage? That's the third term? That's legal? I'm confused by that. I don't know what will happen here, but here's here's the thing I know for certain. The love of Christ should compel us. What does that mean? (sighs) That means it's not a time for us to gloat over some kind of victory. Because for one, I'm not even sure what this will mean yet. In fact, a lot of studies show we may only see a decrease in about 13% less. There's over a million abortions every year. That's not a... That's... I mean, it's something, but it's not enough. So it's not time to gloat, and it's certainly not time to lean back and think this issue is somehow resolved. In fact, it's an issue that was going on long before this particular issue. This, this Roe v. Wade was just a thing that, that speaks to a larger thing of brokenness in people, but also like the church perhaps setting aside its job of taking care of people. That... Whether we want to admit it or not, over the last several hundred years, we've made the decision to let the government handle the thing we were called to do. And that is take care of the weak and the poor and the needy. That is our job, not the government's. And we failed in giving it away. But we can take it back. We should be the kind of church who gets serious in our effort. If we say we're for people, we're for life, then the church has an opportunity to humbly step in and provide loving, compassionate, holistic care. You want to see me get as furious as maybe I will ever get? I don't want to be the part of a church that I've seen before. And that's the kind of church that will come and set up picket lines and say, we, we despise what's happening over here, and then we have a young lady at our church that gets pregnant, and we shun her. And drive her to the very place that we say we hate. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying this is right. I'm not saying that this is right. I'm not condoning adultery. However, the most loving thing we should do is say, it has happened. Now we, we are your family. We're your family. I, I do not want to see that here. It, it will break my heart to see that here. So if we, if we believe this, if we really believe it, then we need to put our effort where our mouths are out. Every bit of the effort we've made to save a life must be put in in loving care for new struggling families. We should be doing that now. Modeling that now. Our ultimate goal, church, don't miss it. Our ultimate goal in this work has never been to save a physical life. It's bigger than that. Our ultimate goal should be to care for people in a way that leads them to know the one who can save their souls. Is your, mark, is your life marked this way? Marked by the love of Christ? I tell y'all, I almost had to just delete Facebook this weekend. Because I was sad about all my friends. Some I agreed with, but I didn't like how they handled it. It's no time to gloat. We've won nothing. Victory is in Christ Jesus and Him alone. There's no other victory. I'm not, I'm not boasting in anything but that. I will boast when I see people come to salvation and say, God is good. How about you, friend? Is your life marked by the love of Christ, a transformed life? This, I think, may be the singular most important mark of one transformed, and that is they show love. 
love for one another, love for those around. Have you surrendered, my friends? Come just as you are, sure, but be forever changed by the love of Jesus. Truly surrendered to Him, finding your identity in Christ Jesus and being compelled by His love. Let's begin this week, church, in prayer. Let that be what starts tomorrow for you. God, I surrender. Whatever you want from me today, I'm there. Who am I? And open up doors that I might pour out the love of Christ to others. Let's pray together, church. Heavenly Father, we recognize something that's true. And that is you love us beyond compare. When you call us, when you say be compelled by love, you modeled it first. You haven't asked us or commanded us to do anything you didn't do tenfold beyond compare. God, I'm thankful this morning for your love. Your generous, gracious, unconditional, the kind of love I know I did not deserve. And yet you poured it out. And you're still doing it. That you love people. No matter how broken they may seem. No matter which side of the fence they may fall on. You love them. And you love them enough to pay for pardon, for ransom. Thank you for who you are to us, God. If nothing else today, I I pray we walk out of this room encouraged that God loves us and that He is transforming us if we would just say, okay, God, I'm yours. (laughs) When I look at the glorious gospel, my logical conclusion, okay, God, here I am, send me. I pray that happens in us this week. I pray that happens even now as we leave this room that, God, are you stirring in us? Is the Holy Spirit moving in us? to be transformed. Do that work in us, God. I'm prayerful for people today. Maybe there's, maybe there's some of us in the room who have never really experienced what it looks like to share their grace story, to let someone else know what the gospel has done for them. Maybe there's fear. I pray, God, you would remove that fear. I pray you would pour out boldness on us, just like the disciples' prayer, that we, that we might be boldly, Lord, I'm not worried about the threats, I'm not worried about these things, like Peter once prayed, but he said, no, help us simply to be bold and courageous. Would you do that in us? Remove the fear. Fill us with boldness. And God, open up some doors. You call us to follow you. Where are you leading? Where is your Holy Spirit already at work? I pray you would do that even now, Lord. Put... Put a person in our mind, someone we work with, someone we live near, someone that maybe we're we're in school together, or or this is a hobby I have. I do this a lot. I play this game. I play this this sport. Lord, that you would put put someone in our mind right now, that you're opening up doors, and if we would just open our eyes, we would see where you're already at work and give us courage you made us ministers of reconciliation. You could have done this all on your own, but you chose to let us be a part of your kingdom's purpose. I'm thankful for that. How meaningful of a mission. There's no greater meaning. And you, you gave it to each and every one of us. Now, dear friend, maybe you've walked in the building today. I don't know. I don't know if you were drug in or what, but Lord, I pray you're stirring in that heart today. If that's you, you've, you've come into this place And you know there's something missing. This idea of yielding to Jesus, this idea of saying yes to Christ, it's it's something you've not yet done. If that's you today, I I pray the Holy Spirit is moving in your heart that you would be willing to put your yes on the table and give a, a, a prayer of confession. It's simple, but it's sure. In the book of Romans chapter 10, Paul writes, if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. Friend, if that's you today, pray with me this simple prayer of confession. Jesus, I know, I know I've messed up. I know, I know there's some stuff in my life that's gone sideways, but today, Jesus, I believe that You died on the cross for my sin that you, you pardon me by your payment. Jesus, I believe you are Lord of my life. You're in charge and I want that for myself, that you would lead me, 
that you, you would allow me to follow, that I could be in your footsteps as you lead me, Lord. And God, I believe that you raised Jesus from the dead. I believe in the cross and the resurrection. And that gives me great hope and faith. So now, Lord, lead me according to your purpose. Dear friend, if you prayed that with me, welcome to the body of Christ, who we are, we are the church, members functioning together for the glory of God. And we're praying right along with you. God, would you lead us according to your purpose, open up doors so that every man, woman, and child in our city would have an opportunity to hear that there is a great God who loves them and has poured out everything for them. Jesus, we love you. Help us now to follow you with all of our strength. It's in your name we pray. Amen.